This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is useful. Welcome to another episode of Equity May. It's a podcast where we help you learn to invest in 45 minutes or less. We break down the world of investing from beginning to dividend so that you can hopefully make some returns. My name's Bryce, and as always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren. How's it going, bro? I'm very good, Bryce. Good to be with you again. I yes. think the 45 minutes is ambitious. Well, for this episode particularly, yes, yes but I think we've been sticking to it pretty well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> now, the reason for this episode where we're breaching the 45-minute rule, Ren, and that's because we did something different with this episode. We, uh, we did a collaborative episode that is actually going to appear on another podcast feed. Double the podcast, double the time. Yes, world first for us. <laughs> <laughs> no, not even. <laughs> yeah, anyway. Uh, <laughs> So we had a conversation today with Paul Benson, who is a financial advisor and host of financial podcast called Financial Autonomy, Ren. And, How many uh, times did you say finance? Yeah, I was sentence? just thinking that, quite a few. <laughs> Paul will explain a little bit later on in the episode the reasons why we uh, joined up, but I thought it was a fantastic conversation. Yeah, it was good. I always enjoy speaking to other people in the finance podcasting community, the small community that it is. Yes. But yeah, look, we agree on a lot of things. We disagree on some things. It's always interesting to speak to people who have a similar goal. And so, yeah, it was a good conversation. Well, without further ado, Ren, we'll uh, leave it there. If you haven't bought a t-shirt, $25, (laughs) equitymates.com forward slash shop. Shirts are available, but uh, we'll leave it there and jump into the conversation. Paul, one of the things that we like to start our episodes with is a game called Overrated, Underrated, where we usually ask our guest, I guess, a number of different asset classes or investing strategies to get an idea of whether or not you think they're overrated or underrated. But by the nature of this episode, general discussion, I think it'd be good if we could throw it around the room. What do you think? Absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Let's jump in. All right. So we'll, we'll start. We'll throw to you. Overrated or underrated, the ASX 200 and perhaps why? Well, we're in November 2019. So at this very point, I would say underrated. And my reason why is that the risk-free rate at the moment for most people is a term deposit and that's paying 1.5%. Dividend yield on the ASX 200 is a bit over four plus franking credits. To me, that seems excessively generous. So I'd say underrated on ASX 200. How about you two? Seems like pretty good logic to me. (laughs) Yeah, I think I was discussing this this morning with a mate. And uh, yeah, I I agree in terms of where it sits relative to other returns that you can get out in the market. I think that there is certainly advantage to still being in the market at this stage. Ren, you're smiling. What do you reckon? I'm I'm always bullish on Australia. So long-term underrated. Yeah, nice. I like it. If, if for no other reason than patriotism. Yeah, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that flows into the next one. I might ask you, Ren, overrated or underrated leverage? Uh, I'm going to say underrated depending on your specific circumstances, but it's definitely something we've spoken a lot about recently on the show. And it's definitely something that I'm thinking more and more about in terms of my investing journey and where I am uh, in terms of you know my age and the amount of working life I have to go, we all talk about the impressive power of compounding. And I think properly using leverage and understanding the risks of it, but using leverage early and then allowing compounding to take hold is a really good formula for long-term wealth creation. 
How do you think about it, Paul? Yeah, I reckon you're on the money there, Ren. I mean, look, it's you know, it's, it's not for everyone, and I'm sure you know general advice and, and the normal kind of disclaimers there. But I mean, you know, people that use leverage to buy investment properties every day of the week, and yet for some reason, if they want to leverage into equities, it's this scary taboo kind of thing, and it always seems odd to me. I think it stems from margin loans and the way about margin calls and that sort of stuff, but. These days, there's a lot of other ways to get leverage that don't have those kind of risks. So, yeah, I would put underrated on leverage for me. How about you, Bryce? Well, Bryce is actually trying to leverage into uh, old 18th century art. So <laughs> that is not true. Yeah, to your point, Paul, I think it's been something that traditionally I've thought as being, you know, a bit, bit out of my league in terms of my experience and a bit sort of scary and, and the risks sometimes out, outweigh the rewards, but also... We've been thinking about it a bit more over the last few weeks, especially. And yeah, there's some great products out there now that take away some of that risk, I guess, or at least let you access leverage um, in a in a more comfortable way. So underrated. Nice. All right. All right. We're in agreement. Well, I, I want to throw one out there. What do you guys think about Bitcoin? You've, you've asked a question that will split the room here. <laughs> I think, I've never been a fan of it. I wait. The, the first run up, I refused to get into it until it got right to its peak and I probably bought on the day that it was at its peak <laughs> <laughs> and then wrote it down. So right. I, I wasn't a fan and then I became even less of a fan. But uh, Bryce might have a more positive view of it. Well, I am still in Bitcoin um, in a very, very small exposure. That's not to say that I think it's underrated, though. I, I think uh, overrated, I don't really keep an eye on it. Crypto, perhaps I can still see having some sort of utility going forward, but um, Bitcoin itself, as I said, not really across it anymore, so I'm going to have to say overrated. What do you reckon, Paul? Yeah, look, I don't own any. I never have. I uh, haven't been comfortable, but I don't dismiss it. So I guess I'd, I'd put an overrated on it. And and I guess, yeah, rather than Bitcoin, I think, it, as you said there, Bryce, you know, broaden it out. Crypto is probably a better way to think about it, cryptocurrencies. Don't own any, don't plan to own any in the short term. But I'm not someone who sort of says, you know, it's all ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's pretty much the same argument as gold. And in a world where we're heading towards zero interest rates and there's the potential for governments to be printing money. I don't know. I can see some argument for it, whether it's Bitcoin or some other crypto. I don't know. But right at the moment, for me, overrated. You've uh, offended every gold bug out there by saying Bitcoin is the same argument as gold. <laughs> but we'll, we'll let them come at you. <laughs> so, Paul, I want to go from the most risky of assets in crypto to one of the safest. What are your thoughts on term deposits? Wasted opportunity. So overrated, I suppose. Uh, turn deposits, yeah. I mean, look, the rate of return on those isn't even enough to cover inflation. So I don't know. It could be a, an instance. I mean, sometimes, say, if you sold an asset and you had a big capital gains tax debt, but it wasn't due for six months, so you just needed to park the cash until you had to pay the tax, yeah, maybe you're plonking in a turn deposit. You know, I can see a few uses for them, but broadly, wasted opportunity in my book. How about you, Ren? Yeah, I'm, I'm 100% on the same page. I think there are certain circumstances where you might want it, but especially for people who are just starting their investing journey and have a lifetime ahead, you're just missing out. You're missing out on opportunity and it's going to hurt you over the long term if you're, you're not even keeping up with inflation one, but you're not taking advantage of some of the better opportunities out there. Nice. Well, uh, Ren, I'll throw one to you. Uh, overrated or underrated, small cap stocks? Very underrated, especially in an environment where everyone's just buying broad market ETFs. Yeah. I love looking at small caps. I think the research process is a lot more fun. If you pick it right, there's a lot more upside there because they're at a different stage in their growth trajectory and journey as a company. So your chance to get outsized returns is a lot higher there than in the top end of town. And it's just more interesting. Like, it's who wants to research Commonwealth Bank? <laughs> like, yeah. I want to find companies that I've never heard of before doing things that I didn't know were done. And that's in the small cap space. Yeah, nice. Paul? Yeah. Look, I, I love Ren's train of thought, and I agree. It's definitely more interesting. I kind of think of small caps as a bit of a hobby, though. If you're investing because, I don't know, you've got some sort of goal, you know, you want a million dollars in a portfolio so that you can retire at 40 or something like that. To me, small caps isn't where I'd pursue that goal, but I but I take on board Ren's point. You know, if, if you're going to invest in large caps, and, and we might get into this later, but you know, you might as well just buy the index. Really, I mean, if you're going to be an active investor and and choose individual stocks, at the very least, mid caps, and, and but probably small caps as well is where you'd want to where you'd want to be uh, researching. I thought. 
Yeah, I think we'll touch on that in a, in a bit. Okay, one more to go. I don't know that I gave an overrated, underrated there. I don't know how to, how to hit that one. But, uh, <laughs> anyway, hopefully I'll neutral. give it some sort of coherent answer. You thought my response was overrated. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's go with that. Yeah. All right, I want to finish it up with one that Bryce has strong opinions on, so I'll throw it to you and then we'll hear from Bryce. Paul, sure. what are your thoughts on the FIRE movement? The FI part of FIRE? Love it. Great idea. The RE, the retire early? I don't know. I don't quite get it. I mean, if you've achieved financial independence, then to me, you've got the choice to do whatever you like. Surely that's that's the goal you want, isn't it? I mean, maybe you do want to retire early, but but what does that mean? Does that mean you, you know, you're a great nomad who goes in a caravan up to Queensland for eight weeks a year? I mean, I don't want to do that. You know, I'm in my forties. That's not something that would make me happy. So yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it feels like a bit of a religion, and it sort of turns me off a little bit, to be honest. But the FI element of it, yeah, on board, love it. How about how about you, Ren? Well, I'm going to throw to Bryce because he has very okay. strong opinions. I wouldn't say very strong, but yeah. <laughs> you can go back through the Equity Mates catalogue and hear some of his strong opinions. <laughs> I, I think uh, certainly overrated. To your point, Paul, I, it feels like a bit of a, a, a cult um, religion. No offence mm. no offense to anyone out there who is deep into the FIRE movement. I think principally the idea you know, of, of reaching financial independence, setting goals, sticking to a strategy, investing for the longer term is great. I think what people sacrifice to get there at this age and, and time in life and, and then I guess for the return that you get, maybe you'd be living on 40000 a year. I don't know what sort of retirement that would get you. But yeah, I think there are smarter ways to achieve financial independence without sacrificing everything right now. So Bryce is playing it diplomatically there, I think. <laughs> and to quote him, I don't want to eat beans for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah. Ren, you said, you said 40,000 there, Bryce. <laughs> you said 40,000 a year there, Bryce. But I mean, there are some of these fire advocates, you know, out of the US that are on talking about 20,000 a year to live off yeah, this li- sort of Yeah, living stuff. in I a mean, bamboo jungle. I mean, that's- <laughs> wouldn't even get beans with that. <laughs> uh, essentially, their life is, you know, sitting in their underpants in front of a computer playing Warcraft or something. Exactly, you know? exactly. It's, uh, yeah. Well, and which goes back to, I mean, the whole reason you're trying to invest and build wealth and that sort of stuff surely is is to live a, a happy and interesting and fulfilling life, you mm. know, and, and – yeah, I don't get some of those ones. I'm, I'm with you there. But look, as as much as we make jokes about it, I think whether we call ourselves fans of the fire movement or not, that really what the fire movement is all about is just making money not the key driver in your decision making. Having the financial independence to do what you want and whether that's retire early or whether that's do a job that you want to do. And I think we're all broadly aligned yes. with that. Yeah. yeah. Spot, spot on, Ren. Yep. It's just how we get there. Yeah, but anyway. Yeah, it's just good. It's good. You know, it's, it's easy to poke fun at. Nice. Sure. So I guess that's a, a bit of an intro into the way we are thinking about um, a couple of assets and I guess investing strategies. So let's jump into a bit of our background before we talk about some more uh, financial wealth creating strategies, which is why we're here today, Paul. But for our listeners who may not have been introduced to you before, do you want to give us a bit of a rundown on who you are and perhaps uh, tell us your story about your first investment? Yeah, sure, sure. So, um, yeah, so I I mean, just to to step back just slightly on that, I mean, for the listeners, so I reached out to you guys and suggested that, you know, we put this episode together and it was because, according to iTunes, there's quite a few of Equity Mates listeners also listen to Financial Autonomy and vice versa. So hopefully there's lots of people listening that have, Uh, that have listened to to both the podcasts before, but for those that either financial autonomy listeners that haven't listened to Equity Mates yet, obviously, uh, you know, I hope you give them a go and uh, it's a fantastic podcast, so I encourage you to do so. But for the Equity Mates people that have never heard me before, my background, so I'm a a financial planner, self-employed, and have been doing that for about 20 years, was an employee uh, as that for a while, and then self-employed since 2006. So I've been, you know, running that way for quite a while. And yeah, I guess particularly, you know, the theme of the podcast and, and that sort of stuff is around that, you know, financial independence and, and gaining choice, I guess, is a key theme that we think about. So first investment for me, look, it was back as a teenager 
And I was, was fortunate. My grandfather he used to work for Jiprock Plasterboard for people that I'm sure that would still be around. And he got given, evidently as an employee, some CSR shares and he, he distributed them amongst his, I think, nine grandchildren. So we got about 500 bucks each. And I don't know, I can't remember exactly how old I was, but, you know, 15, 16, something like that, I reckon. And uh, I was a shareholder and it was really exciting. And it was at a time where you used to get a, it's not like the chess statements that you get now, you sort of got a certificate and that was really cool. And and it was at the time, I mean, this was in the 80s and the share market was doing all sorts of exciting things. I mean, 87, there was a big crash, but, you know, there was the Wall Street movie and there was all sorts of stuff going on. And so it all seemed pretty exciting to me. And then, yeah, to get some shares and not that it was any great fortune, but nevertheless, for a teenager, it felt like a lot of money. And uh, um, that was really good. And then it, it gave me the opportunity. They had this... I'm not saying that companies do it anymore, but it was like a regular savings plan. You could commit to buying, you know, a hundred bucks worth more every month or something. And, you know, I had a bit of a part-time job. So I signed up for that and sort of built it up and, um, you know, I bought some other shares along the journey. But in terms of, you know, the lesson from that, I guess, ultimately, uh, it became the deposit for my first home, you know, and, and it wasn't just CSR shares, of course, but it, it, it was about making a start and, uh, yeah, that was probably the, the, the key for me, really, is that you didn't need to wait until you had thousands and thousands of dollars to invest. You could actually start quite small and, and progressively build on it and learn as you go along. How about you, Bryce? What was, what, where did you kick off? I kicked off way back in, I think, year seven was my first investment, and that was thanks to some good work by my parents encouraging me to save parts of my pocket money directly into a into a saving account that would be later used for purchasing stocks. So I think they were giving me 50 cents or whatever it was back in kindergarten and saved all the way through to year six or seven. And and then uh, there was a float for Brickworks Limited, which was a listed investment company at the time. I think it floated at about 90 cents. And of course, I had no idea what we were doing or anything about it, but I had 500 bucks saved up and dad went into his broker at the time, traditional, you know, pen and paper kind of deal and bought $500 worth of Brickworks. And then from year seven through to 12, I think we just kept compounding on that and buying every time I saved 500, I'd put more and more into Brickworks, but it wasn't until I sort of hit uni that started breaking out into more individual stocks and I guess developing out the the passion for uh, finding finding stocks and, and investing that way. So yeah, um, been investing for a while now, still hold Brickworks, which is um, yeah, still there. So going strong. Yeah, it's good. Ren? Well, if Bryce is the example of a a good investing story, you know, dis- discipline saving and uh, buying something for the long term and not selling it. Uh, I'm the complete opposite of that. I, I came to <laughs> investing a little bit later than Bryce. Uh, I was in uni. I threw some money, you know, on different sports bets accounts and stuff like that while I was at uni. And then I was sort of introduced to the stock market. And at first I thought, oh, this is a way you can do some more educated gambling. I guess that's how I first thought of the stock market. And I reckon that's how a lot of people think about the stock market when they're starting out. My first investment was the uh, now infamous law firm Slater and Gordon. I bought it Ooh, I bought it right. What a nasty one to start with. <laughs> I bought it right at its peak and rode it all the way down, lost 99.5% of my money on it, still hold it because the amount that I have left wouldn't even coverage the brokerage cost to sell it. So I literally cannot sell it. (laughs) So it is a permanent reminder in my portfolio about my terrible first investment. But I stuck with it, naively or foolishly enough. And my second investment, I got very lucky. I got on A2 Milk, the infant formula company, that has done very well selling into China and uh, it is up over 10 times since then. And so with sheer dumb guesses, I guess, more than anything else, my first two investments are the absolute extremes of what you can achieve in the market. But what it showed to me was you can only lose 100% of your money. You, you can invest in the Slater and Gordon and you can lose everything. But your chances of, if you pick the right stock, you can make much more than 100%. And so even though I lost all my money on one stock and made money on the other stock, net I was up and that really showed me the wealth creating power of the stock market. And uh, since then, I think I've got a little bit more sensible, but um, yeah, that's the story. That's awesome, Ren. And I mean, a couple of things there, isn't it? it highlights the importance of diversification, but also, I mean, it's just worth flagging and no doubt you've experienced it since. 
I mean, the amount of times that a company goes to zero or near zero, like Slater and Gordon, I mean, you'd be lucky to be 10 instances of that in a decade, I'd have thought. Like, you're bloody unlucky there. It's not, I mean, <laughs> investments go down for sure, but it's extraordinarily rare that they go down to that extent. Yeah, it was uh, It was a good learning experience. And, and it's a good story now. I, I crack it out and, you know, it's always, a, it's always useful. You know, prices are too sure. boring. <laughs> <laughs> but also it, it means, you know, you don't go, I mean, imagine if your only investment was A2, you'd think you were some sort of investing god and then, you you know, next thing you know, you're margin lending and you're doing all sorts of weird and wonderful things. It, it's probably good to have that experience early to just uh, be a bit humble and a bit, uh, I don't know, cautionary, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So aside from answering a couple of questions that have come in from our listeners today, Paul, because it's not often that we mm. actually get uh, a financial advisor on the show. And often Ren and I find ourselves saying that we uh, cannot be giving any <laughs> advice. So good to have a professional opinion. But the conversation today is going to revolve all around building wealth for the long term, particularly using equities. So to start the conversation, I think it'd be good for us to all try and answer the question, is it even possible to achieve financial independence via the share market. We know that the Aussies are particularly fond of um, creating wealth through property and it's not often that you, well, I mean, it's incredibly biased towards that sort of asset class. So, Paul, is it possible to achieve financial independence using the stocks? Absolutely. To circle back to our earlier overrated, underrated, I think it's hard if you're not prepared to leverage. Not impossible. If you're on a high income and, you, and you've got a high savings rate, certainly not impossible. But I would think for most of us, you're going to lev- you would need to leverage. And if you were building wealth through property investment, you would certainly leverage. So I think that's an important piece of the puzzle. But certainly, uh, I mean, share market investment has a lot of advantages that um, you, know, you guys have no doubt discussed in the past. But I mean, they don't wear out like a property. You don't need to replace the dishwasher or something. There's no council rates or insurances. There's no potential for land tax. Much easier to diversify, much easier to free up. If you needed $5,000 for an emergency, it's a lot easier to get that out of a share portfolio than it is out of an investment property. So shares have got a a ton of advantages. And actually, you know, a lot of the numbers around property, I think, are pretty rubbery as well. The figures will show, well, this, this suburb went up 10% 10% or something, but that doesn't account for the fact that people might have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars renovating the property and putting a new kitchen in and that sort of stuff. So the raw numbers on growth in property, I think, is pretty rubbery anyhow, uh, whereas the share numbers are, are much uh, are indisputable. So certainly, I believe, and not that I'm anti-property, I think property has its place as well, but I think shares hold a lot of advantages and certainly are a, are a valid path towards achieving that that financial independence goal. What, what, what do you guys reckon? Yeah, I completely agree. I think from my point of view, it's the only way I think about achieving financial independence at this point in time. I like the fact that stocks also can generate income and that income can then compound over time. And I think to Ren, to, to steal the, the line from Ren, the stock market is the greatest wealth creating machine in history. And uh, if you just have to look at the returns that it's delivered over, you know, a 10 year period, 20 year period, the power that that has over a long period of time. And, and to your point, Paul, if you apply some leverage to that, I don't see any reason why being in the stock market would not help you achieve financial independence. What are your thoughts, Ren? Yeah, I think there are definitely other ways you can achieve financial independence. I mean, financial independence is simply a, a product of required level of wealth, rate of return and time. Like you, you could, if you lived long enough, you could achieve financial independence through bonds. But I think the stock market has just proven throughout history to be the greatest wealth creator. And you can understand why that's the case. You know, property, you buy it, and in the in the anticipation that the land will appreciate and someone will pay more for it in the future. Same with, you know, art, same with a lot of different assets that people choose to invest in. Stocks have this unique quality where there's a business underlying it where they are trying to hire the smartest people, trying to exploit new opportunities, trying to invest money in different ways, all for the express purpose of generating returns for shareholders. And if you think about that effect over a long period of time, you just don't get that with any other asset class. 
And then you see that borne out in the numbers. You see that over the long term, stocks continue to outperform other shares. And there are always periods where, you know, property does better or other assets do better. But over the long term, across the world, stocks continue to do the best. And I don't see any reason why that won't continue into the future. Yeah. And hey, Ren, just as an extension to that, yeah, it's a great point you raise. When you're buying shares or stocks, and it's just worth mentioning, I've had the odd question, are stocks and shares different? No, it's exactly the same thing, right? <laughs> just if anyone's listening and wondering and getting confused, stock, shares, same thing, different word. But you raise there about when you do invest in shares and you're buying into a business, which is different to the other type of asset classes, a key element there is a business makes a profit. Occasionally they don't, but generally they do they don't pay 100% of that profit out in dividends, right? They're always retaining, depends on the business, but might be half, might be 20%, might be more. And then they're reinvesting that back into the business to buy, you know, take out a competitor or build a new factory or do research and development or whatever. You don't have that in any other asset class. So you've sort of got a natural degree of growth in shares just through the the business operating and reinvesting a portion of its profits. So Paul, Ren and I obviously sit here and it's a bit easier for us to talk about using the stock market to achieve financial independence because we have time on our side, which is perhaps one of the biggest advantages that we have. You've probably had a bit more experience dealing with people who are a bit older and a bit further down their journey in investing. How should they think about the stock market and financial independence if they've just, say, started investing in their late 40s or 50s? Is it a different mindset completely or how do you approach that? Look, I still think, I mean, I'm in my late 40s and I don't like to think I'm old. (laughs) So so I'd like to think that people in their 40s and 50s, I mean, geez, we're going to live till we're 90 odd, aren't we? So um, we've got a heck of a long way to go. So I don't think from that perspective that it means that you have to be excessively conservative and all your money has to be in bonds and send deposits by any stretch. So certainly shares are valid and an important part of your portfolio. I would imagine people in their super are going to have an exposure to shares. And the only question is the proportion that's in shares relative to bonds and property and, and perhaps other type of assets like that. So, I mean, intellectually, if you're in your, your 40s and 50s, you've got a long way to run. You could have a very high proportion of your portfolio in equities, but you do need to be comfortable with the fact that equities are volatile. Statistically, the Aussie share market has about one negative year every five. And so if you're going to invest in equities, you need to go in with your eyes open that every now and again, it's going to be an ugly year. And that's a problem if you panic and sell, right? So as long as you're going in that, okay, sometimes it's going to go down. It's not always going to be a good year. But that's okay. I'm not going to panic. I'm not going to sell. I'm not going to have a need to sell. So in other words, you're only investing money in equities that you can be confident is going to be able to sit there for a long time and ride out the bumps. Um, Then you're going to get a good experience and you're going to get growth that far exceeds inflation. And then that's going to give you options down the road. Uh, So I guess it's just a matter of getting yourself in a comfortable position. And if the degree of volatility of being 100% in equities is going to be uncomfortable for you, and it would be for a lot of people, then perhaps you back that off and you have 70% in equities and you have 30% in conservative assets just to smooth your outcomes, which is the sort of thing that you know, a lot of people in their super fund, they might have a balanced fund, for instance. Right Now, that's a balanced fund. I mean, theoretically, it should be 50-50 asset allocation, but a lot of them are more like 70-30. But the reason people are selecting something like a balanced fund is because they're thinking, well, I want the growth, but I don't quite want the volatility with being you know, all boots in on, on 100% equity. So how can I smooth things out? So that's, I guess, a bit of self-reflection from you as to how you're going to sleep at night and what's going to cause you stress. As I say, intellectually, 100% equities at that age because you've got a long way to run. But I would appreciate for a lot of people, they're not going to sleep well at night with 100% equities. So you just got to reflect a little bit. And if you're a member of a couple, of course, you've got to make sure that your partner's on board as well. You might be happy with 100% equities, but if your partner's not, then that's not a good way to go. Mm. So... Yeah. yeah, it's always a challenge. You you never you can think that you're going to be fine in a market downturn or if your stock is falling, but you never really know until you open up that brokerage account and you see the red. Mm. It's, uh, Correct. It's a gut check moment. And that's actually, it's a nice reason for, for doing some investment early in life that isn't, um, you know, massive amounts of money to experience some losses like that, like you did there, Ren. I mean, that was an extreme example. <laughs> and, but, but, to, 
but to know, okay, well, that happened and here's how I reacted so that then when you're in your 40s and 50s and perhaps you're dealing with numbers that, you know, have some extra zeros on the end of it, you can actually make a decision because it is easy when markets are strong and you ask people, well, what's your tolerance for risk? They go, oh, great, you know, let's, let's, let's do it. And then the markets go down and all of a sudden their tune changes. So it is nice to in, get started early if you can and, and actually experience a few down periods and, and see how that made you feel so that then you know how you want to manage things down the road. Yeah, I think, I think one thing that we've learned throughout this podcast is that getting that discipline and being in a place where, you are, where you're comfortable if the market turns down can actually come through really good savings habits and being really on top of the amount of money that's coming in every month or however, however often you get paid, knowing what you need to spend every month and then having discipline around saving to invest every month and then also saving you know, for a rainy day fund or whatever it is. Because once you have that discipline and you know how much you've got to spend and how much money you've got to get coming in, when the market does turn, you don't need to panic and you don't need to panic sell because you've got to cover bills or anything like that. If you're confident that you're on top of your finances, then you will have a lot more tolerance if a certain investment turns against you because you'll have comfort that you know you have the money to cover it, you know you've got your rainy day fund and the the money that you've invested is money that could be invested and could be lost. So I think it's almost counterintuitive to go back to savings when you think about how you um, prepare yourself for a market downturn, but just getting on top of your finances and being really disciplined about it. And Bryce is looking at me funny because he's definitely more disciplined than I am about it. I'm not looking at you funny. (laughs) um, I think that's a really good habit that everyone can get into. That's a great point, Ren, and it's and I guess it's it's coming back to financial literacy, isn't it? And that's the good thing with, you know, with the podcast like we're creating and and the people that are choosing to listen to our podcasts. I mean, they're educational. People are listening because they want to learn, and and that's a, an awesome quality, you know, because if you yeah you you choose to be informed on your financial position and know what's going on, then yeah, exactly, you're exactly right. You know, you you can respond appropriately and not panic. Hey Bryce, I mean, just just talking about this volatility. I mean, your bricks work, your brickwork shares would have taken a hit during two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine. How did you respond to that? Um, stayed strong. I um, didn't didn't sell. The only time I sold some of my brickworks was maybe three years ago, and that was just to, I guess, skim some of the profits and put them into something else. But very much still in the position that I bought or have bought over the sort of last 10 years. And I think that just came down to, I guess, my dad pretty much trying to teach me the lesson that, you know, as you said, one in five years, you're going to have a down year and maybe one in 10, you're going to have a much more serious correction, but uh, riding it out over the longer term, you know, generally the share market comes out on top. So I am quite an emotional investor and I have been burnt before selling stocks when they're on the down, trying to cut my losses and then they'll rebound to three or four times what I sold them at. But uh, (laughs) Bellamy's being a classic example. (laughs) But look, I think particularly with something like a listed investment company or if you're buying in the index, um, there's really no point in panic selling. It's going to bounce. So that's, Yeah. yeah, I got through that. Bryce barely noticed no, the GFC. No. 2009, he was finishing high school. He was just playing footy and chasing girls. Uh, <laughs> living the dream, huh? GF what? <laughs> I would love a GFC yeah. now, though, because uh, we're, <laughs> I'd love that buying opportunity, as morbid as that sounds. But, uh, yeah, to have a buying opportunity like the GFC would be would be awesome. It's Yeah, there's some people that made a lot of money, isn't there? I mean, in some ways, that's the good thing with our superannuation system is people inadvertently were still buying through super, right, because their employer's contributing without them thinking about it. And so they were buying through the GFC. But, yeah, I mean, as you say, knowing what you know now, you could you could hit it even harder. But at the time, when, you, when you're deep in it, it does feel like the world's coming to an end. So it's kind of easier with a bit of distance, I think. The, the thing is, I know a lot of people say, oh, I, I'd love another GFC. I, I'd really like to have that buying opportunity. But the stat that has really stood out to me is – so Lehman Brothers collapsed on a Monday, and that was really a key point in the GFC. If you had invested in the S&P 500, so the 500 biggest American stocks, on the Friday before Lehman Brothers collapsed on the Monday, in the six months following, 
you would have lost between 40 and 50% of your investment. You would have been devastated. But if you had just held through the JFC and held into today, you would have more than doubled your money. So whilst you would have made more money if you bought at the bottom of the JFC, you would have been loving it. You still would have done very well if you bought right before shit hit the fan. Like you would have, you would be absolutely fine today. And I think that just shows that even the GFC, you know, the worst financial crisis since the Great Depression, if you have the the stomach to hold through these bad times, the the market bounces back. So whilst I also uh, wouldn't mind the GFC to spend some money, and I do have some cash always just in case because you never know i think it's a mistake to try and time the market in that way i think you know the age-old mantra time in the market beats timing the market i think that plays out time and time again yeah yeah good observation for sure paul are you a stock picker or an etf buyer when it comes to your preference for for investing more ETFs or, or index funds anyway, um, I guess, you know, there's a fair bit of research to suggest that, look, if your objective is to hit a particular goal, then the most reliable way to get there is to have a broad portfolio, usually via an index. But intellectually, it's interesting to follow individual stocks. And so I do do a little bit of that. And for some clients, we do a little bit of that as well. Um, particularly, I guess, the mid-cap space, I think at that large cap end, you really might as well go the index. But the mid-cap end is interesting, and, and I should just sort of caveat, but obviously general advice only and all that sort of stuff. Depends on your circumstances, right? But if purely your focus is, I've got this goal, I want a million dollars by X date, and you know, then you probably would just entirely go the indexes. And if you really wanted to dig in a bit, then maybe you'd think about, well, do I go an index of Asian shares? Do I go an index of healthcare stocks? Do I go hedged or unhedged? You know, there are different things you can – think about there, uh, and even, I mean, you can use ETFs, of course, to buy bonds or, or all sorts of other assets as well, gold perhaps. So you can play with that sort of stuff without necessarily going into the individual stocks. Um, but it is interesting to go into the individual stocks from an intellectual perspective. And I know well, it was one of, one of your past episodes I was listening to where you, you interviewed a, a professor out of the US. I can't recall his name now. Mir Statman. Um, but yeah, well, he equated it to, well, look, going individual shares – it potentially costs you a little bit relative to the index, but I mean, so does playing golf or you know doing these other these other sort of things. But we do it because it's interesting and we like it. And um, as interests and passions goes, I would have thought following the share market and picking some individual shares is a heck of a lot better than I don't know going down to the TIB every weekend or something. So uh, one of Bryce's yeah. favourite pastimes, golf. <laughs> golf is yes, golf. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how, I mean, you guys obviously you love your individual equities, but. How do you guys think through picking individual stocks versus just, oh, I'm just going to buy the market with an index? So I think you've hit the nail on the head there in terms of picking stocks being something that we're interested in. I The way I structure it is I have a sort of set and forget long-term portfolio, which is made up of mainly index funds um, and ETFs. So, you know, your ASX 200, your S&P 500, yeah, you're just big broad-based market indexes and I just I plan to never touch them, never sell them and just to average into them. But then I also have a separate sort of I guess pot of money where I try and pick stocks and I keep telling myself if I don't if I severely underperform the index and I'm not very good at this, I'll stop doing it. But yeah, I, I'm I'm interested in it and I enjoy it. And I think having a separate bit of money put aside to invest in individual stocks sort of motivates me to do the savings part and the, all the other parts better as well. So for me, that works. But it's definitely I definitely do have that long term index part of my portfolio as well because you're right. The studies continue to bear bear out the fact that. Long-term market returns beats stock picking. Yeah. Well, how do you play that one, Bryce? To to Ren's point, love trying to pick a, a winner, a 10-bagger. <laughs> hundred bagger. <laughs> hundred bagger. Have had fun in the past doing it. Have also been severely burnt in the past trying to do it. I think for me, the time required to be a successful investor with a portfolio heavily weighted in individual stocks is quite large 
and it's something that I don't have at the moment is time to sit down and methodically research stocks to the point that I'm comfortable with the thesis, with the valuation, you know, all that sort of stuff. So at this point in time, I'm, I'm heavily weighted in ETFs and, and indexes, listed investment companies, letting the professionals sort of take that um, time and, and do it themselves. And then I'll just give them the cash and they can invest it on my behalf. <laughs> um, because, you know, um, I'm not a professional when it comes to stock picking, and but I know that there's huge advantage in being in the market. So that's kind of how I see it at the moment. If life gives me more time and I become financially independent, I might try and choose some, uh, spend more time choosing specific stocks. Don't get me wrong, I still do do it, but to the extent that I was doing it when I started investing, it's now sort of drastically reduced and I just average into ETFs and listed investment companies each paycheck that comes in. Just going to ask, in terms of the, the indexes that you guys do, do you always just go the straight indexes like the S&P 500 or the ASX 200 or do you ever go, uh, you know, equal weights or, or hedged or, or particular sectors, like I say, the healthcare sector or the, the tech sector? Do you get into any of that sort of stuff? I, I do. I like the boutique sort of indexes that um, can give you exposure to, I guess, a theme that you're interested in. For example, marijuana or biotech, healthcare, whatever it may be. That's probably one of the biggest appeals for ETFs and indexes for me, particularly in the States. You know, I, I like thinking about the macro trends that we're seeing and what's the implications for those. You think about the growth in middle class from, from Asia, what impact is that going to have on Australian businesses? You can get ETFs now that give you exposure to India, what, what's that going to mean over 20 years? And there's more products that allow you to invest sort of based on macro themes. So yeah, I, I don't just stick with the, I guess, the broad heavy hitting ASX 200. For me, not as exciting. Yeah, they're stable, you get some good dividend return, but also in terms of capital growth, probably not the same as if you're you're looking at maybe even a small cap index, a mid cap index or emerging markets. So all things that we've sort of discussed. Ren? Mm. I'm the same. I have some, you know, theme-focused ETFs, um, cybersecurity, stuff like that. Um, I have some, uh, yeah, some like emerging market ETFs and stuff like that. I think when you talk about the research around index funds, it generally seems to be, well, I mean, they've, there's obviously a longer history there to research, but I, I think the broad-based market ETFs are the ones that have outperformed the best over the long period of time. I, I love the idea of equal weighted indexes because intellectually it seems to make sense that a lot of the growth in like the S&P 500 or the ASX 200 comes from the stocks lower down that list getting bigger, whereas the bigger stocks are already you know, quite large, but I'm not, I'm, I haven't seen research that shows that equal weighted indexes do better over a long period of time than uh, just market cap weighted indexes. Hiring for your small business. If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals. You can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. But look, that's a long way of saying, I think spreading your money around different indexes, different geographies, different themes uh, makes sense in the same way that diversification generally makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah, spot on. We could probably do a whole episode on index funds and different ETFs and that sort of stuff. There's, there's heaps there. Absolutely. We've done, we've done about 100 episodes. <laughs> it's our, It still is our number one question that we get from listeners. <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, before we jump into a quick speed round of some questions that have come through from our listeners, we noticed that you had an episode titled The 10 Worst Things You Can Do to Prepare for Early Retirement. What are those 10 things? Very interested to hear this because I'm sure I'm doing six out of 10 of them. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's hope not. All right, let let me run you through them. All right. So the first one is not having a budget or any sort of sense of cash flow. Number two, living on the credit card. So these are both, I guess, ability to save, which ties into number three, not saving. Right? You're never going to get there if you're not saving, if you're not managing your, your cash flows, and if you're blowing out the credit card. From there, if you're not investing, you're not going to get anywhere. If you're sitting cash in the bank, you've got no hope. Investing too conservatively, right? Again, turn deposits, this sort of stuff. You're not going to get the compound growth that you need. Ignoring your super. I mean, a lot of people do. It's, you know, perhaps it's boring or whatever, but the reality is it's, it's going to build up to a lot of money. And if you have that invested, in particular, more conservatively than it needs to be, you're wasting an opportunity, or if it's an expensive fund, or if it's got insurance in there that you don't really need, this sort of stuff. So don't ignore your super. Another mistake would be to be checking your balances every few days. You know, markets go up and down, they're volatile, checking them every few days isn't going to help. It's likely to just lead to bad decisions. Spending hours reading fire forums, and we've probably already touched on that, <laughs> on that right? Having no hobbies or interests outside of work. And because if you're going to retire early and you want to be happy when you retire early, if all you ever do is work six days a week, 14 hours a day, great, you're going to get to retirement and then you're going to be miserable because you've got no friends and you've got nothing else to do. Uh, and then the last one is focus so much on retiring as early as possible that you ignore your important relationships, you know, your partner, your kids, that sort of stuff. Your kids are only young once and if all you're worried about is how can I retire at 30 or 40 or whatever it is, and meanwhile, you never get to your kids' school play or their award ceremony or coach them at basketball or whatever it is that floats your boat, well, it's a wasted opportunity. You'd be far better off easing off on the work and not worrying quite so much on the money and and enjoy your family while you've got them there. So that's my uh, 10 worst things that you can do to prepare for retire early. What do you reckon, guys? I like it. Yeah, Thankfully, from my point of view, I'm not uh, falling against many of them. Except you hate read fire forums. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's a good segue into one of the questions that has come through. You mentioned there, Paul, not considering your superannuation or thinking about your super. And, you know, if you're young, it's probably something that you're not paying as much attention to as someone who is probably a bit older in life. And then it brings into question self-managed super funds. So one of the questions that has come through is what super balance do you you kind of need before it's even viable to consider opening a self-managed super fund? You know, it'd be be fun to take control of the money that was in there and and invest in in the way that you'd like, but I'm sure that there's a, a tipping point where it doesn't really make sense. Do you have a view on that? Yeah, I do. Generally, a real lot. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of solutions these days, like even I think Australian Super, where you can buy direct shares yeah, through they, Australian Super. They give you heaps right? of control. Mm, yeah. mm. Correct. And there's lots of other uh, solutions, wrap funds, that sort of stuff. So if your reason for going self-managed Super is because you want to invest in equities, then you don't really need a self-managed Super fund to do that. So, you know, the amount that you need for that, well, probably north of half a mil or something like that, like a lot because you could more cost-effectively do it through a lot of other solutions. Now, most people go self-managed super because they want to invest in property, and that's not so easy to do, and, and that's probably a different discussion. But, yeah, I'd be – I guess, I don't know. Just certainly, if you're going to go into self-managed super, go in with your eyes open. At the very least, you've got accounting and auditing costs, which is probably three grand a year, and that's without doing anything else, without any brokerage or anything else. It's highly likely that you could find a lower cost solution that would get you the same outcome that you're trying to achieve. Yeah, so it's primarily due to the running cost of the super fund that you need a decent balance. Otherwise, you're probably going to be paying fees that are higher than your return. Hopefully, not though. Exactly but, right. Yeah. Like your your annual return and your audit are roughly the same, no matter how much you've got in there. Yeah. yeah. So as a percentage, it's fine if you've got a really big balance, but if you've got a smaller balance, it's it's just going to be a killer. Yeah. So one other question that we got, which I think we uh, a lot of people wonder, was about investing in the share market and paying off a mortgage yeah. and uh, asking if they can do both or should they prioritize one over the other. Do you have any thoughts on that, Paul? 
Yeah, it comes up a lot. We get a lot of questions on this as well. Mm. Yeah, I reckon you can do both, but I think you have to you have to pick one as your priority. Uh, and there's arguments both ways. It's nice to get the mortgage paid off. It's a certain outcome. The flip side is interest rates are very low at the moment. Maybe you'd be better investing in growth. So there's no one right answer, but pick one. Still do, you know, still have, if your minimum's $1,000 on your mortgage, we'll pay 1200 right? So you're doing something more than the minimum, let's say, and then the rest to your investment, if the investment is you decided, if that's your priority. Or you could flip it the other way and put most of the mortgage and just put 200 bucks a month into an investment, you know? And you can do both, but I think you've got to decide well, which is the number one and which is the number two here in terms of order of priority. How, how do you guys think about that one? I think there's probably a mathematical and a psychological way to answer this. The mathematical one is if your interest rate on your mortgage is, I don't know what it goes for these days, 4% and you can earn 8% in the share market, then mathematically it makes more sense to take the higher return. But psychologically, there's something really meaningful and encouraging about paying down your debt and seeing that balance reduce and that might encourage you to, you know, it might give you more motivation around your money moving forward takes take some of the stress off with that you know big debt hanging over you but i think you're right i think doing a bit of both is the right way to go about it but the best investment you can make uh better than investing in the share market or paying off your mortgage is paying off credit cards because the interest on that is outrageous so that should be your number one focus over both of these things if if you have credit cards Mm. good point bryce what do you reckon Oh, look, I don't own a property, so it's not really on my radar at the moment. But I, if I did, hypothetically speaking, I would certainly try to continue putting money into the stock market. Thinking back to what my sort of parents taught me back in the day, it doesn't matter how much you put in as long as you're putting something in. So it could be, you know, even 10 bucks. And I know that's probably, you know, a little bit too small, but the principle is is there, you know, if your priority is to pay the mortgage, make it your priority, but just keep ticking away in the share market. It's got great advantages. So that's how I would approach it. Yeah, nice one. Now, Paul, this one might be asking you, you know, to talk your, you know, your own profession up, but is there an advantage in having a financial advisor? And if there is, how do you find a good one? Is there an advantage? Yeah. So, of course, I think there is because I am a financial advisor. That's not to say that everyone needs a financial advisor to the same extent that there are some people that maintain their own cars and do their own oil change and that sort of stuff. But I don't. I take it to a mechanic, right? So, I think most people would benefit. Now, whether they just need a a one-off, let's put together a strategy and then they're good to go, or whether they need an ongoing relationship, you know, there are different ways that you could you could tackle that. But yeah, I think most people, if finance isn't their day-to-day game, then they're going to get benefit out of talking to someone who thinks about this stuff all the time. It's it's the classic, you don't know what you don't know. So, And there's just some good value in, in having a discussion around, well, what are your goals and how are you working towards achieving those goals? Because a lot of people just kind of float along and live your life and maybe you don't think too much about, well, where do I want to be in 10 years or 20 years? So I think there's a lot of value in those kind of discussions and that's that's what you'll be uh, doing if you're sitting down with a financial planner. In, in terms of how you find one, look, I think probably the best place to start is to ask friends and, and family for a recommendation. If if there's someone you know and, and they say, yeah, look, I work with this person and, and they've been really good, well, then that's a pretty good place to start, I would have thought. You can check there's an ASIC register of financial planners, so you can always check that people are appropriately licensed. And I guess if they call themselves a financial planner, that's a it's a word that's restored for financial advisor. They're restricted words under the legislation, so they shouldn't be using those words if they're not. But nevertheless, you can check the ASIC register. I guess there are some people that call themselves money coaches, and the reason they call them that is because they call themselves that is because they're not licensed, and that's a term that you know anyone could use. So I'd be a little bit wary there. Uh, but yeah, you can always check the ASIC register. And I guess the other thing is most financial planners, your initial appointment, discovery type meeting, there generally won't be a cost for that, or if there is a cost, it's not a huge amount. So you do have the ability to go and see a planner and just kind of see if they're talking your language, you know, if you feel like they sort of resonate with you and, and they're on the same page. And if and if they're not, you're under no obligation to keep going. And like I say, in most cases, the planners will wear the cost of that initial appointment. So yeah, don't be afraid to, to sort of shop around. And if the first person that you sit down and have a chat with isn't right, then try someone else. 
Nice. So I guess following on from that, some of the questions we got are, were around financial planners and financial advisors having a fiduciary obligation. Mm. So I'm not even going to try and answer this. I think you're the expert, so I'll let you <laughs> yeah. answer this one, Paul. Yeah, so that fiduciary, so that's that's a way that they categorise advisors in the US. So it, the standards here in Australia are higher than in the US. So all advisors have a, a best interest duty, have to act in the best interest of their clients. And so that's, you know, if something's wrong and you end up in court, then that's what you have to prove, that, that you're acting in the best interest of the client, which is, that's what fiduciary means, right? In the States, they kind of have two categories. So they have advisors that have fiduciary, but they have a, a sort of a lower level, which are really just people employed by fund managers or banks to essentially sell their products. So they kind of have this two-tiered process. We don't have that in Australia. Anyone that, that is giving advice has to uh, meet that best interest duty uh, classification. So, yeah, so certainly high standards here, and I guess... Uh, you know, there was the Royal Commission what, earlier in the year, last year, that sort of stuff, shed some light on some some poor practices, particularly from some of the larger banks. And so that's led to a really big clean out there, which is great. And uh, yeah, you know, the standards, I mean, there's, there's further things that have been legislated for a while that are progressively being rolled out. And yeah, the standards are, are very high. And uh, I think there's always going to be one or two bad apples in any profession. But I think overall, the standards in Australia, um, they really set the bar globally. So the final one, and this comes, and I can actually speak to this. So I have an emergency fund, Paul, that I've been saving up for for a while. It's, you know, three to four months worth of total living expenses, rent, bills, you name it, like covers the lot. Sitting in cash, it's quite psychologically difficult to see it sitting there knowing that the cash environment at the moment is pathetic and it could be put to better use. And this is something that a couple of our audience members have also asked. From your opinion, is it best to sort of just sit it in cash? How do, how do you think about an emergency fund when it comes to this sort of thing? I mean, if you've got a mortgage, you'd sit it in an offset account, but you don't, Bryce. So for people that don't, yeah, look, I don't really see a, any great alternative there. Sorry. Mm. It's, I mean, interest rates are low at the moment. It's like, damn you, interest is. rates. So get a mortgage <laughs> price. Yeah, true. Maybe I need a mortgage. There is, there is some value in just having a bit of liquidity. You, you know, anything else is going to tie up your money. Yeah, I reckon you just have to cop that on the chin. Sorry, mate. <laughs> no, look, I, I expected that would be the answer. There's no silver bullet when it comes to that thing, that sort of stuff. No. But- just risk it. No emergency fund. See what happens. <laughs> that's, how Ren, that's how Ren would play it. But uh, <laughs> Awesome. I think that was a, a bit of a one-sided convo there, but there were some specific questions that I guess we probably can't answer. We don't have the expertise to do so, which is why it's awesome to have you able to answer them on, on uh, I guess, our behalf, uh, Paul. Yeah, so, no worries. Hopefully it was helpful. So, brings us to the the last final three questions that we always do at the end of our interviews. I thought it would be great if we just uh, go around the grounds, as they say, um, sure. <laughs> to answer the three of them ourselves. Um, so, Ren, I might start with you briefly. What is <laughs> – Ren can really yabber when it comes to books. So, what is one of your must-read books, investing or otherwise? I'll, I'll just say one. Um, yeah, well, that's it says one. <laughs> <laughs> so, the book that I go to is a great book with a terrible name. It's by Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who people might be familiar with his dad, Jim O'Shaughnessy, who wrote What Works on Wall Street. But Patrick wrote a book with a terrible title called Millennial Money, but it is a cracker for beginner investors. I think it is, it's the best one I've read to, to really get you started. And do you see how I actually slipped two books in there? <laughs> <laughs> he's, um, he's pretty active on Twitter too. So He is, yeah. Following Worth there. following. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Bryce? Look, Ren has stolen my... He put me onto this book, Millennial Money, and I agree. It's probably one of the easiest but also most uh, rewarding investing books that you can you can read, particularly for a millennial, as the title suggests. <laughs> but um, not, not just for millennials. No. Yeah. Um, there's some great strategies in there and, I guess, ways to frame the market. But if I was to give one that is perhaps not investing related, but more sort of business entrepreneurial shoe dog by Phil Knight, which is the former CEO of and founder of Nike. Fantastic book, great insight into the struggles that he went through to start Nike. And I guess the just goes to show how perseverance can really pay out in the end. So awesome book to read. 
What about yourself, yeah, Paul? Yeah, wholly endorsed that. I love Shoe Dog. And like, he even didn't he go back to uni or something to learn how to write so he could actually do a good job? Like, it's a yeah, really good book. That one. Look, the one I'd throw out there, a bit of a different flavour. It's a it's an old one, but if you guys read Barbarians at the Gate, no. It's a, it's, I don't know when it would have been written, probably in the 90s, uh, but it's it's two journalists and they track what at the time was the largest corporate takeover in American history. It was the Nabisco, you know, the biscuit manufacturers. Okay. And the backstabbing and the double crossing and the, um, it's quite incredible just how that all unfolded. The two journalists, I'm not sure their background, but they're clearly, you know, they're uh, Wall Street Journal type quality journalists, and it's just a, a page turner. A hunt that one down, Barbarians at the Gate would be my tip. Nice one. So, second question that we always ask is what's your go to source for financial information? Yes, I'll take a swing at that to kick off. I mean, Financial Review, uh, I have a skim through that every day. Um, and if I want graphs, which sometimes it's just nice to see that historical context then uh, I could jump onto Yahoo Finance and, and pop the graphs in there. We do have some researcher subscriptions as well, but certainly AFR and Yahoo Finance for graphs are my starting points. Uh, how about you, Bross? I start my Mondays with Equitymate's Thought Starters email. <laughs> yeah, of course you do, as do I. <laughs> no, very similar to you, AFR Daily. We've spoken on the show before. Reddit's a great source of information. I do like getting around FinTwit financial Twitter and yeah, just general chat with our mates always brings up good conversation and then can sort of trigger some further research. So that's how I go about it, Ren. I'm going to say all of the above, although I, I, I understand that I shouldn't be reading as much day-to-day news, financial news as I do, but a, a really good one that hasn't been mentioned, I think is Reddit and some of the specific subreddits, investing, security analysis, have just some great resources that this global community are sharing. So that's definitely a good one mm. to check out. Hey, just another, sorry to have an extra swing at it, but you, uh, there's the email Morning Brew. I don't know if you guys check that one out, but it's it's pretty US specific, but it's not bad. I don't mind that one either. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of some of those mailing lists. We we did a few live shows with Finimize earlier this year. They have a good mailing list. Quartz, Q-U-A-R-T-Z is a good one as well. So there's a, okay. there's a few good ones floating around. Mm. Oh, good. How about um, I might have a swing at this last one or, or, you know, kick you guys off. A piece of advice that you tell your younger self. Ren, what do you reckon? Oh, I guess I am getting older now. (laughs) (laughs) A ripe old age of 27. (laughs) I think that I had a lot of lost uh, investing years not learning to invest until late at uni. Um, so I think I would say to my younger self, take a page out of Bryce Lesky's book, who I wouldn't have met yet, but, um, and start saving and start investing while I was in high school. Um, I think getting those, getting those habits early is really important. And then I would have been able to invest in the GFC as well. So that would have been nice. What about you guys? Do you want to go Bryce? Yeah, sure. So for me, I would tell myself, I spoke about it earlier in the show at the beginning of my investing journey. I was trying to be Warren Buffett and uh, choose individual stocks. So I would say forget stock picking, stick with the LICs and the and the ETFs, even though ETFs back then were sort of relatively new on the scene. But I would certainly be, yeah, forget trying to uh, pick the 10 baggers and just uh, stick to the the LIC managed fund sort of stuff and, and uh, ride it out from there. What about yourself, Paul? Yeah, nice call. I think for me, look, I wasn't a, I wasn't a slacker, but I, if I could tell myself something, it'd be just grow up, <laughs> just, just just crack on a bit, you know? Like I don't know. Well, I mean, I, like I say, I mean, like I, I went to uni at night, you know, so I was working during the day and 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 six years of uni, so it wasn't that I was that I was slack, but but I was probably more concerned about I don't know fitting in and wanting people to like me, and you know. Now, looking back, worry less about that would be my advice to myself, I suppose. And, you know, just think about where you want to be 10 years down the road and and, and take some genuine actions to make that be able to happen rather than just kind of float along and do what you think everyone else thinks you should be doing. Yeah. Good piece of advice to close out the show. I think from our end, Paul, it's been awesome to have someone that we can bounce some more financially specific advice-related questions off. It's not often that we get someone like yourself on the show. So from our end and from our listeners, 
Thanks for joining us. It's been fun. Yeah, and look, from my side too, I mean, I've, I've had a ball and uh, and I'm sure all the financial autonomy listeners will, you know, will love hearing your voices. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, for the financial autonomy guys, if you haven't yet checked out Equity Mates, definitely uh, definitely give it a go because these guys put out a, a great podcast and uh, lots of interesting content. So, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I've had a ball and uh, I don't know, hopefully we can do it again sometime. Yeah, definitely. We'll look forward to seeing... Uh, the podcast grow and uh, hopefully the finan- Australian financial podcast community continues to grow with both of us. Spot on. All right. Thanks, guys. Equity mates and the people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. This is general advice only. Please speak to a financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your individual situation. Equity Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The secret to visibly firmer, summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dull, dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Rich yet never greasy, Andaria Algae Body Oil is formulated with sustainably sourced seaweed to help replenish the skin's moisture barrier and seven nourishing active botanical oils for results you can see and feel all over. The best part? It's signature scent. A blend of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. This all-natural scent is unforgettable. Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code GLOW.